factory. Georgetown University professor Joseph McCartan teaches a class on industrialization and the workforce from the 1960s through the end of the 20th century. He describes emerging technologies like barcodes and computers, a decrease in union power, and an increase of wage inequality. His class is about 50 minutes. All right, welcome. Uh, of course, I'm Joe McCartan, in case anybody has forgotten. Uh, this is uh, History of U.S. Working Lives, and today we're going to be talking about a period from 1968 to 1988 that I call Turnabout Years. I come up with the title um, this way because of a historian that wrote about the 1930s, um, which is a period we've talked about earlier, and he called them the turbulent years, the years that gave rise to the CIO and all of the organizing and militancy that we saw then. These years were equally important, I would say, to shaping 20th century working America, but in a very different way. They weren't years of upheaval, organization, and progress so much as a, a big turnabout a way in which the American working class suddenly took a turn to a different stage in its existence, where we could say that from the 30s to the 70s was an experience of almost unbroken progress and expanding rights for workers. But in the years between 1968 and 1988, a lot of that turned around. So turnabout years. I want to start with three stories uh, that help locate what's going on in this period, then talk a bit about what's happening to the economy, talk about public sector workers in the period and the fiscal austerity that they faced, and then conclude with some barometers, as I would put it, of what's happening to working class America by the end of this period. So to begin, uh, let me start with three stories. I'm going to locate these in 1977, so roughly about halfway into the period that we're talking about. It's 32 years after the conclusion of World War II. It's uh, 32 years of pretty much American progress economically, at least into the early 1970s, when workers saw their standing, standard of living rising um, and increasing opportunity, in fact, even increasing rights, as we've seen African-Americans and women for the first time win some protections of their workplace rights against discrimination. But into the mid-1970s, it became clear that all was not necessarily well with the American working class. I think one way that you start to see this is expressed in the music and the culture of the time. Take, for example, what was a leading country and Western hit of 1977, a, a song that you couldn't hardly turn on the radio without hearing. It was written by a writer called David Allen Coe, and it was performed by a, uh, a singer with a perfect name, I guess, of Johnny Paycheck. Um, the song was called Take This Job and Shove It. And I think it says a lot about what was going on uh, in these years for many workers. I've been working in this factory, the lyrics go, for nigh on 15 years. All this time I watched my woman drowning in a pool of tears. And I've, been, and I've seen a lot of good folks die that had a lot of bills to pay. I'd give the shirt right off of my back if I had the guts to say, take this job and shove it. 
And he goes on to talk about his foreman, he's a regular dog, his uh, uh, line boss uh, thinks he's so cool, uh, but you know, Lord, I can't wait to see their faces when I get the nerve to say, take this job and shove it. Now that was a, an experience that a lot of people felt, even into the 1970s in their work in many workplaces in this country. And the angst of many workers in this time, I think, is expressed in those lines. The phrase, take this job and shove it, it turns out, I think, starts to take on interesting, deeper meanings in 1977, though. Consider first what was happening that year in Atlanta, Georgia. On March 28th of 1977, sanitation workers went out on strike in Atlanta. It was an all-African-American sanitation workforce. They were led by a fellow named Lehman Hood. There you see him pictured on the left with the then president of their union, Jerry Wirth. Lehman Hood had been marching in Memphis with Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968. In 1970, he'd gone to Atlanta and helped lead the organization of sanitation workers then and lead them out on strike in that year. Um, they ended up getting a union and, in fact, um, winning a, a pay increase as a result of that strike. But by 1977, the progress had seemed to slow in Atlanta. And what was really ironic about it was that the city, by 1977, had its first African-American mayor, Maynard Jackson. In fact, Jackson had been deputy mayor of Atlanta in 1970, when that earlier strike had uh, happened. And he very courageously, in the middle of that strike, came out. He broke with his mayor, a white mayor named Sam Massell, and said, you've got to help these sanitation workers. Their wages, he said, are a disgrace before God. Uh, and in fact, he helped to turn public opinion uh, and help win that strike for the strikers. He then went on to become elected mayor in 1973 with the help of that union, AFSCME, and with the help of that guy, Lehman Hood. But once he became mayor of Atlanta, he turned and he felt he needed to build support among the white business establishment of the city. And it would look bad, he felt, if he caved in, as he saw it, to the demands of uh, the city's workers, even the sanitation workers, who had struggled over the years. And their wages in 1977 were still poor. They went out on strike. Jackson refused to negotiate with them. In fact, he issued an ultimatum. You return to work in 72 hours, he said, or you lose your jobs, you're fired. Hood was shocked. This was a guy he knew, he'd worked with, and he'd turned in this way, and in fact, he proved true to his word. They didn't return, and he fired them. In fact, in the middle of this, to add insult to injury, the political establishment uh, of the civil rights community Atlanta for the most time for the most part sided with the mayor in fact Martin Luther King's father nine years after his son had been assassinated in Memphis helping sanitation strikers he felt that this strike might damage the first African-American mayor of Atlanta and he came down hard against the strikers he said publicly to Maynard Jackson that if they don't return the work to work, you should, quote, fire the hell out of them. Uh, and, in fact, that's what Jackson did. Later on, the strike broken. Many of them did get their jobs back, 
But it was clear one thing, times were changing and not necessarily in a good way. Here is a protester being arrested uh, during the, the strike uh, against um, protesting against Jackson's stand in Atlanta. So that's story one. Story two, a completely different part of the country, just months later, September 1977, September 19th, it was a Monday, um, in Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown's just west of Pittsburgh. It had been a steelmaking center in the country. In fact, it was known as Steeltown, USA. Steel City, USA, as this postcard from the 50s had it. And in the years from the 1930s to the 1970s, it had been a center of huge employment of many steel workers, people like Johnny Metzger, um, although he himself didn't work in Youngstown. It had been the site in the 1930s of struggle. Um, this very plant, uh, the Youngstown sheet and tube plant uh, in Youngstown, workers used to have to go back and forth over this bridge to get into the plant back in the 30s. When they finally organized the CIO, one of the things they had to do over the years that really galled them is they had to pay a penny, a toll, to get in and out of work on this bridge. Uh, and they said, the hell with that toll. Uh, they formed a union. They initially lost the strike in the little steel strike of 1937, as we saw most unions did. But they got the union finally by 1941. And in the post-war years, they built it into a really uh, a good job to have. But when they arrived on September 19, 1977, that morning, 5,000 people to go to work, summarily they were told without warning, we're closing down the plant. That day they were out. Uh, some of them had only recently graduated from high school. They looked forward to working there as their parents had done, as their grandparents had done. It was a solid job, and suddenly it was gone. It became known in Youngstown as Black Monday, and it wasn't the end. Within five years, 50,000 jobs were lost in what's called the Mahoning Valley around Youngstown. Uh, in what had been a deep industrial part of the country, the heart of the steelmaking center of the country, was being wiped out. And it began that day in 1977, at least symbolically. The third story. That summer of 1977, uh, the Congress introduced, with a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, now in office, a bill um, called the Labor uh, Law Reform Act. Uh, and it quickly passed the House. It passed the House by October of 1977. What was the bill being pushed through Congress for? Well, by 1977, it was becoming increasingly clear to people who supported unions that the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, really no longer functioned. Employers, as we talked about before, they found no penalty, really, in engaging in unfair labor practices. And the number of charges that employers 
that were brought against employers for engaging in those practices was skyrocketing, up 400% between 1960 and 1980. The number of workers who were fired for trying to form unions, up 300%. Those who had to be reinstated and given back pay because it was proven that the company had illegally fired them, up five times. And a whole industry having emerged uh, of labor consultants who advised companies on how exactly to pursue these policies, when to fire people, how to appeal it in the courts, how to basically get around the law. The bill was supposed to fix all that. It got through the House. It ran into a brick wall in the Senate. It, the Democrats controlled the Senate. They controlled the House. They had a Democratic president who said he would sign it, Jimmy Carter, but they could not overcome a filibuster in the Senate. They couldn't get 60 votes, uh, and it died. Um, and in fact, there have been several attempts since then to reform labor law. They've all failed. So in the middle of this period of this post-war boom that had lifted so many Americans, by the mid-'70s, something was happening, something disturbing that led to the events in Atlanta, that led to the shutdown in Youngstown, that led to the bottling up of any possibility of being able to modernize a labor law that was already, by then, 40 years old and growing increasingly anachronistic. America was entering a new period. Now, I want to talk about two aspects of this period. Um, one is what started to happen to the economy as all of this was, was occurring because the country started to go into a rapid uh, economic reorganization. And this was just uh, a set of factors. I would say that five big things came together in the period between 1968 and 88 to really change everything for workers. A fateful convergence, I would call it. The first of them is what happened to oil and gas prices and how that led to a, a word that nobody had ever heard of before and a concept that was alien to economists even 20 or 30 years before, a concept called stagflation. Basically what happened was this. In October of 1973, a war took place between Israel and some of its Arab country neighbors. It's known as the Yom Kippur War. Um, the U.S. supported Israel in that war. In retaliation for that, um, some Arab member states of an organization called OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, decided to embargo oil sales to the United States. This sent fuel prices skyrocketing. And just in a matter of weeks in the uh, fall of 1973, the country saw huge lines at gas stations, rationing uh, of gas happening in many states, uh, and stealing of gas out of each other's um, gas tanks sometimes by siphoning. Uh, that was how desperate some people were for gas. I don't know if you can make out that one picture there, but it's a father and son saying, gas dealers beware, we're loaded for bear, and he's got a gun in his hand. Don't try to take gas from us. Now, what could lead to this kind of um, sense of panic, almost? Well, I think 
for working class America, probably there was nothing symbolic more of post-war prosperity than having your car and the mobility that came with it. And suddenly, gas prices were making driving that car increasingly difficult. And what that led to was a bigger economic phenomenon uh, that we call stagflation. Actually, there were two oil shocks in the 1970s. The first happened in 1973. The second began uh, in late 1978. You can see them on this chart here. And what happened during these shocks is that prices skyrocketed at the same time that GNP growth plummeted. And when GNP growth plummets, that means unemployment goes up. Now, here's what was weird about that. Um, prior to the 1970s, it was a basic law of economics that unemployment and inflation tended to balance each other out. When unemployment was up, that meant workers were out of jobs, they weren't spending money, that would drive prices down. Unemployment up, prices down. If unemployment started to fall, that would tend to push prices up because people had money, they had jobs. But what happens when both rise simultaneously? That had never happened before. But as you can see in these periods, uh, that happened. And it was given the name stagflation. And it's hard to, to exaggerate the degree of disorganization and fear that that produced in many working class households that were simultaneously fearing losing their jobs in this crisis, but also um, at the same time seeing prices rise. It had a big, big impact. Look at the changes in consumer prices over the years. There was a big inflation spike during the war, one right after it, but then two big spikes in the 1970s, in which for a time inflation got up above double digits, more than 10% increase in the cost of things on average over the course of a year. At the same time that that was happening, unemployment was also high, as you see on this graph. And that led to a tremendous sense of being squeezed by many Americans. What followed with that, what coincided with it, was an, just about total sudden stop in the growth of real wages. What, what that means is in the growth of the purchasing power of the average person's paycheck. What does a dollar buy, right? Now, all through the post-war years, there was a continuous rise in that. Um, the purchasing power of the American paycheck grew over time. You could buy more with it, but suddenly, boom, it flatlined, as you can see, and even went down. The real average weekly earnings of workers suddenly made a downturn after 1973. What impact did that have on families? As you can see here, um, it meant that family median income suddenly stopped growing and basically flatlined. So individual income was declining. Family income was stagnant. By the way, what do you think accounts for that. If individual income was declining, shouldn't family income have been declining? Why wouldn't it have been? Anybody have a guess? Transition from single breadwinner system to double. That's exactly right, if you didn't hear that. The transition to two breadwinners. What families did in response to this is that they deployed women with children into the workplace faster. A couple of the demographic consequences of what happened. 
One was that women's share in the paid labor force, boom, jumped by more in the 70s than it had in any decade, crossed the 50% mark for the first time. And it started to affect when people married and when they had children. People started to marry later. This might seem astonishingly young to you, uh, that uh, in 1971, most women on average married at age 20. Can you believe that? Um, it had risen to all of 22 by 1981. Men from 22 to 24, uh, that still might seem young to you because it's continued to go up, right? But the biggest reason that it went up then was that people were uncertain about making the economic commitments necessary in this new environment. So you had stagflation, you had stagnant incomes, and then you had the beginnings of the phenomenon that we've come to call globalization. It was beginning already after World War II. Um, we had basically bombed to rubble the German economy, um, the Japanese economy, but we helped rebuild those after the war. And then we also saw our companies become multinational and increasingly invest abroad. It got to, by 1971, actually for the first time, the U.S. imported more than it exported. So that was happening even before the dislocations I uh, mentioned in the 70s. But what made globalization much more real for people in the 70s was a transformation that was happening in logistics. This is something that I think shapes all of our lives even today. Um, where you can uh, order something, say, from Amazon and have it within a day. Um, all of that, I think, can be dated to what began to happen in the 70s with shipping containerization. Um, actually, not much had changed in the way ships were loaded and unloaded between the 19th century and uh, the 1960s. They were mostly loaded and unloaded by longshoremen who put boxes on pallets that were then hauled up in a cargo net, uh, deposited on the dock, uh, or taken up from the dock and deposited in the hold where longshoremen would stack them in the hold of the ship. By the 1950s, a shipping uh, entrepreneur named Malcolm McLean came up with a revolutionary idea. What if you put all of the things that were made in a factory into a container at the factory and then put that container on the back of a truck or train, took it to a dock, put it in the ship, sent the ship to wherever it was going, it was unloaded, and then that same container was either put on a train or a truck and brought exactly to the location where it was needed where the goods had been ordered. This would so streamline shipping. Uh, and that's what he did. He founded a company called Sea Land. And he shipped his first container from New Jersey to Texas in 1956. The first one from the U.S. to Asia in 1968. But it was really in the 70s that containerization took hold. And what it did was it totally transformed shipping in this country by 1980, 70% uh, and plus of goods between the U.S. and Europe were sent this way, 80% between the U.S. and Asia. 
these giant ships, um, and if you're driving on 95 up past Baltimore, you see those big cranes that are meant to move those containers uh, that ply now the Atlantic and the Pacific. What it did was completely shrink the globe. It made shipping so cheap to move goods that suddenly U.S. workers found themselves competing with workers around the globe, making things that could be shipped so cheaply it didn't matter how far from the point of use that they were ultimately made. And what began to happen in response to that is the creation of global supply chains. Um, supply chains that made use of these technologies um, and could assemble a kind of global assembly line. Um, consider the automobile, the, the product that invented the assembly line, Henry Ford. Before the 1970s, almost all the parts in an automobile assembled in the U.S. were made in the U.S. By the 1980s, they could be made increasingly anywhere, and they could be brought here cheaply. And once these global supply chains started to emerge, that really changed things. And the way companies could make all of this logistical revolution work was in combination with other new technologies that really also took off in the 70s the communication satellite. That meant that uh, a corporation could be in immediate contact with uh, any um, of its contractors around the world. The UPC code, the barcode, which was developed in the 70s and really took off in the mid-70s, that made it possible to scan an item uh, in China later and to immediately know in the U.S. when it had been loaded uh, where it was anywhere in the world, etc., and of course the computer. The combination of those things changed the structure of the economy, and that was already going on by the mid 70s. With all of this, a fourth uh, event uh, happened. That is, corporations began to change in some fundamental ways, and their relationship to the market, to the financial market, also began to change. I'd say the first change is a change from a kind of capitalism that I would call managerial capitalism to one that I would call shareholder capitalism. Um, before explaining that change, let me say a few things about what made it possible. The 1970s saw the intersection of three things occur that made a uh, a financial revolution in the country possible. The first was that there was a tremendous increase in the pools of capital in this country that were looking for an outlet, a place of investment to get returns. Part of that was a result of the success of workers. They had won pension plans for themselves in the public and private sector. Part was a development of new entities like 401ks that were made uh, a tax investment retirement, uh, tax protected retirement investments made possible by legislation in 78. As huge piles of capital develop, they can be used to leverage change in the structure of things. The second thing that occurred was that the stagflation, the rising inflation that I told you about, had a big impact on how people with that capital thought about what kind of returns they wanted. 
Before the 70s, 4 or 5% returns, that was good. You were happy with that. You're not happy with that if the inflation rate is 10, 11%. And so suddenly there is an incentive to try to get greater returns on investment. Uh, that's preparing to change the way markets work. And then a third thing, a new idea. An idea first proposed by economist Michael Jensen and William Meckling. Uh, an idea uh, that I think could be you know, defined as shareholder capitalism. Basically what these economists did in 1976, they looked at the way U.S. corporations were run and they said, they're not getting the best return on investment. And in fact, their corporate leaders are kind of lazy and they're not doing the best for their stockholders. What we need is stockholders to be able to get more. And we need corporate leaders to respond more to stockholders. And that's indeed what started to happen. One of the first executives who got this message and who fully imbibed it, who believed it entirely, was a man who came to the leadership of General Electric Corporation in 1981. His name was Jack Welch. And he gave a, a speech in uh, 1981 at the Pierre Hotel in New York right after becoming GE's CEO. And he called it um, growing fast in a slow-growth economy. And basically what he said is, there are things we can do to get those bigger returns. And one of the things that he focused on in GE was downsizing. Taking the pe company's payroll and shedding as much of it as he could. And the more he shed, the more stocks prices, or prices rose. GE cut its payroll from 411,000 down to under 300,000 in just five years under, uh, under Welsh. And the revenues of the company ballooned at the same time. He developed a nickname uh, in those days. It was after a weapon that uh, the military was developing called the neutron bomb. The thing of a neutron bomb was when you dropped it on a city and it exploded, it didn't destroy any of the buildings. It just simply spread lethal radiation over everything. It killed people, but it left structures intact. Um, and in a sense, this is what they said about Jack Welsh, is that uh, he was like a neutron bomb for GE employees. They called him Neutron Jack. So, yeah, he was popular. In fact, he was a guru. <laughs> he became a guru for the management people of his time. What's that um, TV show with Alec Baldwin that used to be? 30 Rock. So the, the executive in there was kind of patterned on Jack Welsh, right? Uh, that, that the Alec Baldwin character tries to emulate and wants to be. That was the thing to do in the 80s, was to manage your company that way. And as that was happening, as people like Welsh were, were redefining the corporation, they actually began to change the form of American corporations. I'd say you could look over the 20th century and say there were three different models of corporate types that existed. At the beginning of the century, it was a model of bigger is better. And that was a model of vertically and horizontally integrating a corporation, buying up as many of your competitors as you could, buying up the upstream and downstream parts of your business so that you had the most market control. 
That's what U.S. Steel did. It was founded in 1901. Um, and it was that kind of company that gave rise to managerial capitalism. What is a, 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 an evidence of managerial capitalism? Remember how U.S. Steel responded in 1935 to the CIO? Anybody remember? They what? By bringing in the police. Well, not quite. Not quite. Anybody? It's okay. It's been a, a, a week or couple. So, <laughs> uh, what they did is they recognized the union without a strike, right? They didn't want to go through what GM went through, and in fact, the corporate leaders felt free to do that. They didn't feel pressure from their stockholders that said, "Don't do that." And in fact, there was no stockholder backlash. They ran the company as they saw fit. And they weren't really worried about what the market thought. And in fact, it probably proved to be a good decision for them. So you had that model, and that was ascended up until the 1950s. In the 50s, in the post-war era, it started to change a little. Instead of integrating within your sector, companies began to diversify, to buy up things outside of their sector the so-called conglomerate. It was on the rise between the 50s and the 80s. U.S. Steel joined that parade. In 1981, they bought Marathon Oil. It had nothing to do with the steel business, but they thought it was a good sideline for the company. They even changed their name to USX when they did that. So we have the rise of the conglomerate, and then what happens as a result of the market revolution I've just described to you is that a third model starts, and it really dates to the 70s, what we might call the lean corporation. Because once people started to think about how you get more returns on investment, how you bump up stock prices, they began to look at those conglomerates and believe that they were worth more in pieces than they were as a whole, that the whole was less than the sum of the parts. And so thinking that, people began to move in to sell off parts of these conglomerates to drive up prices and, again, to shed part of their labor force. One company that modeled this was the Likes Corporation. It was a shipping company. But it bought Youngstown Sheet and Tube in 1969. And it, after it did that, it basically used Youngstown Sheet and Tube and to suck capital out of it to do other things never reinvested in the steel uh, uh, furnaces of the company, and, uh, and then ultimately decided it made more sense to shut it down than to keep it running. Youngstown was still pop profitable at the time it was shut down in 1979, but Likes thought it could do better by moving that capital elsewhere. Uh, and increasingly, that's what we started to see. Now, with that came... New, new tools and a new approach on Wall Street to how to run companies. The emergence of a new phenomenon called private equity firms. They were giant pools of capital uh, in which partners would en encourage people like uh, hedge or uh, pension funds to give them for five years a big hunk of capital and pro promise big returns. Amassing the big capital, the Private equity leaders would buy up companies and break them apart and resell them, often making a lot of money, but in the process usually laying off a lot of people. A lot of this was accomplished by big borrowing. Leveraged buyouts were buyouts that happened when 
when companies had to borrow a lot in order to buy up new companies. And they often did it against the wishes of the management of the companies they were buying, so-called hostile takeovers. Um, that led to a, a phenomenon between 1987 and 81, 85% of the U.S. Fortune 1000 downsized, shedding about 5 million jobs. Remember, we talked about the Kelly girl. Uh, and you uh, remember this from Hatton's book on the Kelly girl. The thing about the Kelly girl was that she was flexible. You could get rid of her. Uh, she wasn't an ongoing cost. And increasingly, this idea started to represent more and more workers to corporate America. The declining employment of the top 500 industrial corporations, they were all shrinking in these years. A final thing happened as the economy changed, and that was a new ideology started to gather strength in the country, what we could call neoliberalism. By far, its most influential figure was the Nobel Prize-winning economist. He won the Nobel Prize in 1976, Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was a critic of the New Deal. He was a critic of government regulation, of liberalism, of unions, and basically believed that private markets, unleashed markets, unregulated markets were better at everything than government was. And he became increasingly influential in the 1970s. He had a weekly column in Newsweek. Um, he authored a huge book called Free to Choose that became a very uh, uh, influential book uh, in its time. And so influential were ideas like his that they also affected how Democrats thought. It was under the Carter administration that neoliberal ideas of deregulation first began to spread. Airlines were deregulated in 1978, trucking in 1980, the banking industry in 1980 as well. The thing about airlines and trucking, they had been highly regulated before this. That is, the rates that they could charge, the fares that you could be charged on an airline. The government all had a say in all of that. It was not necessarily great for consumers. Um, and what Friedman argued is that competition without regulation would lead to lower fares. That did happen for a while until airlines started to consolidate and to collude to try to prevent it. But what it really hurt was workers, because under regulation, uh, their companies weren't competing so hard. They were able to protect their pay standards. That became hard to do. So a huge transformation was happening between 68 and 88 in the structure of the economy and how it worked. And that, that transformation had huge implications for working people. Now, that's the private sector. Let's shift a little bit and talk about government work, government employees, because there the story was also a big turnabout in the situation that workers were, were facing. Coming out of the 1960s, the public sector union movement was, was surging, um, inspired by things like the Memphis sanitation strike. In 1970, postal workers engaged in a wildcat strike nationally, uh, that perhaps over 100,000 people participated in, not delivering the mail. Uh, and 
In effect, they won new legislation that allowed the Postal Service to become the USPS now, a semi-governmental body, and for postal workers to have the ability to bargain over things. And that came from that strike. Public sector unionism into the early 70s kept expanding. Uh, it was, in fact, growing uh, even as private sector unionism was declining. This is the public sector. And in fact, uh, a greater percentage of public sector workers were in unions by the mid-70s than private sector workers. But boom, they ran into a brick wall in the mid-70s because of some of the economic changes I've mentioned to you. Uh, 1975 was a real turning point for workers in the public sector. It was that year that the stagflation of the 70s really hit home and in the place of New York City especially, where public workers had done the most to win rights, to bargain collectively, to improve their situation. Suddenly, uh, New York was in the middle of a crisis. Think about it. When stagflation happened, that meant prices soared. That meant the price of everything a city had to buy soared, including its own energy costs. The economy dipped. That meant tax revenues dipped. So governments were paying more and bringing in less. Boom. What do you do? Uh, workers were caught in the vice uh, very quickly. And, uh, and the federal government refused to help New York. Uh, Mayor Abe Beam appealed to then-President Jerry Ford for help. This was Ford's answer in a famous uh, front page of the New York Daily News. Ford, the city, dropped dead. You're on your own, New York. Uh, this is a, a situation. You made your bed. You've got to find your own way to uh, get out of this. What happened was that massive layoffs had to happen in New York, and that caused a lot of turmoil. Police, fire, sanitation workers were laid off, and many of them engaged in protest as a result of, of that. Um, police began uh, distributing this leaflet here called Welcome to Fear City uh, at airports and the Port Authority and uh, the train depots, basically saying, you know, we're being laid off here. Uh, maybe you want to think about going somewhere else on vacation. Uh, and trash began to pile up in the city. Um, bitterness developed between public sector workers and the government, which had been more or less allied with them before that. So by the mid-'70s, there was a, clearly a problem. By the way, how did New York get out of that uh, crisis? In part, the unions did it. Um, the teachers' union and the city's largest union of municipal workers, AFSCME, uh, their leaders, the teachers' union leader, Albert Shanker, Victor Gottbaum of AFSCME, they used the union pension funds to buy municipal bonds that would help to keep the city afloat, and it made it through the crisis. But everybody after that crisis knew that things were different, and they were going to be far more austere from that point going forward. That crisis also opened the door to a campaign that began to gather steam as the 70s moved on to privatize the public sector. One of the people who'd been calling for this for a while was Peter Drucker, one of the nation's premier economists in 1969. He wrote a book called The Age of Discontinuity. It included a chapter that was called The Sickness of Government. And basically what 
what Drucker said is that there's mounting evidence that government is big rather than strong. It's too big. We need to downsize it. We need to take government uh, services and find a way to use the market to deliver them, privatize them. So just as industry was changing, so too was pressure on government to change. How did public sector workers deal with that? They didn't like it a bit uh, because they knew that this pressure was coming after them. And they tried to push back against it in the late 70s. You could see that the number of strikes occurring in the country continued to grow in this period. Um, as the austerity regime was clamped down on workers, workers tried to push back against it. Um, they were not getting much help from Washington either. Um, in 1978, um, they wanted to reform the Hatch Act, a federal law that restricted what federal workers could do to be involved in politics. They also hoped to pass a Civil Service Reform Act that would give them the ability to um, bargain, federal workers to bargain over their pay. They weren't allowed to do that. Frustration was building. Uh, and this really was something you could see when you looked at the nation's air traffic controllers. I ended up writing a book about this because I thought it was really uh, a symbolically important group and what happened to them symbolized what was happening to many workers in this period. I want to talk about this union briefly called the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO. It was made up of men like this. This is a picture of air traffic controllers working on a radar screen in 1960. This was uh, taken in New York in a hangar called Hangar 11 at then JFK, where they used to monitor with very old equipment planes going in and out of New York. It was uh, in uh, that hangar on a December day in 1960 that a terrible mistake was made because of the bad equipment. Planes were routed toward each other, and they had a mid-air collision over New York killing many. The workers who were involved in that uh, effort said, we have to end this. You know, they've been complaining for a long time about the uh, outdated nature of their equipment. Those kinds of radar screens, they literally came off of battleships. They were uh, old-fashioned and not up to the task. And these controllers had been complaining for years about the stresses of their lives embodied in this cartoon from their magazine from this time. Two people who worked that day in 1960, Mike Rock and Jack Maher, they were both military veterans, working class guys from New York, um, from the Bronx. They banded together. They said, let's organize. And they started to form a union with the help of President Kennedy's executive order in 1962. They eventually formed a union by 1968 called PATCO. But they couldn't really bargain with the federal government. They were not recognized initially. So they started to push back uh, against the what they felt were unsafe procedures by slowing down their work. This was a, a magazine uh, picture in 1968. Right after they formed the union, they engaged in something called Operation Air Safety. They just went by the book um, of how the instruction manual told them they should be working. And that slowed everything down. They said, we're not going to speed up until you improve 
our jobs. They eventually won recognition of their union and their first contract by 1973. This is their union president, John Layden, meeting with Richard Nixon. Here are some of the union leaders right after they formed their union. But over the course of the 1970s, uh, they found that they were really unable to change things. And so they determined that when their next contract expired, which would be in 1981, that they would strike if they had to, to change the situation. These were buttons they started to wear by 1980 on the job. They knew their contract would expire. Um, I'm going. That means I'm going to strike. This is a, a fist holding the uh, headset that controllers used to wear. Uh, they were ready to strike, strike a blow for unity. Um, they had one, uh, they had gotten no real help from the Carter administration, so they gambled and they, they decided to endorse Carter's opponent in the 1980 election, Ronald Reagan. And they thought, and Reagan uh, wrote a letter to them, said, I will help you if I am elected. But once Reagan was elected and they tried to negotiate with him, they found that they were not getting what they wanted. They actually did go on strike. Uh, on August 3rd, 1981, they went out on strike in airports and control centers all over this country, about 11,000 of them. They basically froze air traffic for some days. And what Reagan did is exactly what Maynard Jackson had done in Atlanta in 1977. He said, you have 72 hours to return to work. If you don't, you're fired. They didn't return. They thought that the country couldn't possibly operate without them. And they were fired. Um, and they were replaced. And it took years to get the system back up to speed. But the government had the resources to do that. And it constituted a huge turning point. So... To bring this around to a close then, a huge number of changes had occurred. The economy, the power of public sector workers, all of this had begun to change rather rapidly. By the 1980s and in the aftermath of the PATCO strike, you could see that some uh, important barometers were measuring danger for working people. One was that after PATCO, workers in general found that they couldn't strike anymore effectively. Um, PATCO was a federal strike. PATCO workers didn't have a right to strike. But in the private sector, even where workers did have a right to strike, many employers felt like if the president can fire strikers, why don't we just replace them? Uh, and that's what began to happen in strikes like the Phelps Dodge strike of 19. Uh, 83. Remember Jack Metzger in the 1950s, strikes were so common. And they were a measure of working class power and the ability of workers to get things from their employers. All of those strikes had happened with a precedent on the books that dated back to the 1930s that basically said when, when workers strike for higher wages, employers can replace them if they want. Now, most employers didn't do that before the 80s. And then all of those strikes in the 50s, there were very few efforts by employers to beat those strikes. But uh, that precedent started to now be brought into effect. When copper miners went on strike in Arizona, they 
faced replacement workers. The National Guard was called out to break their strike. Other strikes by Hormel meatpackers, international paper, paper workers, Greyhound bus drivers, they were all broken. And as workers saw strike after strike broken, you saw the number of workers and strikes sharply diminishing. As workers saw that they really did not have the power to strike anymore. That led to a second thing. When workers no longer had the power to force their employers to deal with them, what began to happen is that productivity and wages began to diverge. All through the post-war period, workers were able to ensure that if they became more productive, that their wages would rise with their productivity. After 1973, that began to change. Productivity kept rising. Compensation stagnated. Workers didn't have the power to force companies to do anything about that. And what did this lead to? A final thing. This post-1981 period saw increasing inequality in the country. Inequality that started to recapitulate something that existed before the Great Depression, but had been diminishing since then. Inequality was on the rise. So all of this happened in these turnabout years from 1968 to 1988. But now just a final thought. So I talked about the things that were happening in 1977 in Atlanta, in Youngstown. In rural Mexico, about three hours from New York City, something else happened that year. Um, a young boy named Eduardo Gutierrez was conceived. He would be born the following year. We'll be reading about him and talking about him in the book that we'll be discussing when you return. And what we'll see is that his family, too, was starting to be affected by these same things. And these things would bring him to this country. And how his story then intersects with this larger story is, I think, something we'll see uh, that deeply speaks to us in our time. Okay? Thank you very much.